We are continuing our series in the book of Philippians in the New Testament, um, which is a letter from Paul, and he's writing in prison in Rome, and he's writing to this church in Philippi, which he had actually planted uh, just over a decade previously. And remember, this, this is one letter, so at the time it would, have been, it would have been read out as one letter. So I'd love to just really uh, quickly recap where we've been so far. And uh, to help us get in the zone, I'd love you to imagine with me that we're in the first century. Uh, we're in Philippi, uh, a city near the coast, and it's buzzing with activity. They've got the equivalent of the Granary Square with the Facebook and the Googles of the day moving in. There's people moving in from around the empire, uh, and it feels like Rome, okay? Like the, the roads, the architecture, the money, the sights, the sounds, the smells, it feels like Rome. And we're meeting in Lydia's house. She is a follower of the way. She's a businesswoman. And we're meeting in her house, and your head is spinning. Your heart is pounding. Because up until recently, your worldview has been one of patriotic pride in the Roman Empire. And your allegiance has been to Caesar and to Caesar only. But this group that you've got to know carries something. And they meet as men and women, as uh, Greeks, as, as Jews, as slave and free, which you never thought was possible. But you're sat in this room. And they're saying something about this other one true Lord, one true King called Jesus. And, you've heard, and you're being uh, really like pulled in, drawn into this story. Imagine that for a minute. And this is what's happening. And um, you've heard tales of Paul planting this church a while back. You've even met the slave girl who was set free at that time. You're sat today opposite the jailer who's, who just feels so, seems so full of life. It's hard to imagine that he was suicidal at one point. And then there's Epaphroditus. And, he, and you as a group have been praying for him um, over the last few weeks because he'd fallen ill. You thought you might lose him, but he's made it here and he's made it here with a letter. And there's excitement in the room as this letter gets brought forward. There's a buzz around, but there's also this weight of the reality of what it is to follow Jesus in the face of persecution, hearing stories of what's happening to other people from this group and to Paul, who's in prison. This letter, these words from Paul about to be read out, you hang on every word. And um, as, as a church, I say, the last three weeks we've been going through this series. I just want to really quickly recap where we got to. John, at the start, kind of set the founding story of this church. And he left us um, with this image of kind of two circles and, and this question, really. Is our life centered on Jesus or is it centered on someone or something else? Remember that Paul was writing this letter literally in chains, uh, in prison, and somehow... His circumstances didn't dictate his worship. It reminds me of the words of the psalmist, when my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Somehow he was able to maintain this perspective. And then second week, Pete took us through this stunning uh, hymn, which is kind of the centerpiece of the letter, which really basically just shows us, Jesus shows us what God is like through this hymn. He humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. And Pete left us this image of two staircases. And contextually, contextually he, he told us about this course of honor and how Jesus was redefining the course of honor. 
And then last week, Anna gave us this question, do our lives make sense without Jesus? Like, does Jesus make a difference to our lives, the way we're living? And Paul, we read verses like, I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection. I want to participate in his sufferings. Huge words from Paul. And that's where we've got to. And so Adair's going to come and read. That's where we're jumping in at um, chapter 3, verse 12. So let's give uh, Adair a round of applause as she comes to read for us. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. But their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Amazing. Thanks so much, Adair. Round of applause for there. And so just um, like in previous weeks, we're just going to go through this chunk by chunk and draw some things out that the Lord, I believe, has for us today. So not that I have already obtained this or have arrived at my goal. So Paul's kind of, as I say, he's just read out this whole thing about um, his caliber and his, um, the way that he can almost certify himself as a follower of Jesus. And then he says these amazing words, I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. But then he goes on to say, not that I'm already there. He's like, just so you know, I'm not there yet. And the word he uses, for arrived at my goal, this teleao from the root teleos. Uh, it has a range of meanings, but it's basically like an end goal or perfection or also kind of like maturity or to be fully grown. So he's basically saying like, I'm a work in progress, just so you know. And then he goes on this word, I press on, deoko, which is to chase after, uh, to, to run after, to pursue. It could be used in like a police sense, but it also, the press part of it means to persecute. It's quite a violent word. When I was reading that, I thought, oh, that's like quite strange. But then I thought, actually, we do things similar, don't we? With like, oh, I absolutely smashed that, or oh, you totally nailed that. It's kind of this sense of just laser-like focus. Like, I'm taking this seriously. I'm focused on this. I'm going to press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And I think that last line is such an important part of this passage. Christ Jesus took hold of me. Jesus grasps us, and that's the starting point. Like, we need to know that, that actually the starting point is that Jesus pursues us. Jesus initiates relationship with us. We love because he first loved us, right? So Jesus grasps us. And so therefore this pressing on and this striving, and as we get into this passage, it's not this sense of like, because we need to earn it. It's not a striving because we have to do something to earn it. It's out of a response to what Jesus has grasped and took hold of us for. Jesus initiates and our lives are then a kind of worshipful response to that. 
And there's a little bit of context to help us understand that. In the previous passage, we'd heard about the Judaizers, which were like um, really legalistic. But there was also these people called the antinomians. Uh, anti meaning against, nomos meaning law. So they were basically totally the other end of the spectrum, where it was like, it doesn't really matter how you live. Like, it's grace, and so it doesn't really matter. You can do whatever you want. And so he, we, the scholars think he's referring, and he's also addressing these antinomians when he's using some of this language. Basically, how we live is important. How we run this race does actually really matter. We're grasped by Jesus for a purpose in our lives. And then he carries on, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of that similar phrase. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. This forgetting what is behind is such a powerful uh, illustration and, and verse for me. Now, there's, he's talking about forgetting the good things. Again, in the passage before, he kind of said, you know, he's a Pharisee, Hebrew of Hebrews, all of these things. So he's saying, like, let's forget the credentials. Let's not rest on our laurels. We've still got lots to do, even in the midst of things that might be positive. But he's also talking about painful things. Things that have been done by us, we shouldn't have things that have been done to us that have caused pain. He's saying we can forget what's happened. We can leave these at the cross. You know, and for Paul, this is huge as well, because don't forget he was Saul. This was a man who was persecuting Christians, breathing murderous threats against Christians. There's a lot that he wouldn't necessarily have been proud of, but he's able to say forgetting what is behind, letting go. And uh, the Greek, this, the word for forgetting, it's like to forget, but it's also no longer caring for or given over to oblivion. And I found that really helpful because it's almost like, you know, you might still remember it, but actually it's making sense this is not going to have a hold on me anymore. This thing that's happened in my past, this thing that has been either I've done, that I need to let go of, or other people have done, this is not going to have a hold on me anymore as I run this race. It's also in the Greek present tense. So I think that's, that's deliberate. It's this continuous forgetting. It's this continuous day by day, like choosing not to let things hold us back as we run this race. And uh, these two passages, which I just find so powerful, that I think really tie in with this forgetting what's past. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Jesus' words, I tell you the truth, those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death to life. Also in the Bible, it talks about our sins being put at the bottom of the sea. This amazing sense of God's grace. This is what it's about. This is what Jesus has done for us. The cross means that we don't have to live in the past anymore. That it's much more about who we're becoming. Amazing, amazing truth. Amazing grace. And he carries on, same passage. Forgetting what is behind. Straining toward what is ahead. This word straining um, epictinomai, lovely Greek word. And uh, it's this, this image of um, just kind of going flat out, like stretching out for the goal. And I think this is where Paul starts to use like running and athletic imagery. It's this idea of like stretching towards, like I'm really, really going to go for this. And um, he then like gets into this, this flow of uh, imagery around a runner. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. 
Now, in the Greco-Roman uh, games, there were running races like we have now in the Olympics. And the goal was literally uh, like a post that the runners would run to. So it's this image that he's given us of like just going flat out towards this post, towards this goal, because they want to win the prize. They want to get that Olympic gold medal. I want to run the race. I want to stand before God at the end of my time and receive the prize that he has for me. This is huge uh, encouragement but challenge from Paul in the imagery that he's using. I, and I, he starts saying, I want my life to count. And that really um, resonated with me this week as I was preparing. Like, I want my life to count for something. You know, life in the grand scheme of things is so short. Life is so, so precious. I don't want to waste it on meaningless things. I want to pursue Christ. Do we know Christ? That is the most important thing. I want my life to count for something. And then he goes on uh, in the next verse 15. All of us who are mature should take such a view. Now this word mature is actually the same word that he was used when he was saying, I'm not, I'm not already there. It's the same word, uh, teleos. But, and I think that's a bit confusing because it's like, well, you just said you weren't and now you're saying those of us who are. But I think, I think the point here is that actually um, the more we grow in maturity in our Christian faith, the more we realize that we're not there yet, Right? Almost like the closer we get to Jesus and to his light, the more aware of our shortfalls, shortcomings we have, the more aware of our dirt. I think it's something about that. We grow in maturity, and as a result, we realize we're not the finished article. We cannot do it all by ourselves. And then again, this race imagery, only let us live up to what we have already attained. In other words, like, don't fall back. Don't just like, keep your eyes on the prize. Let's keep going step by step, step by step, step forward. Let's not get distracted. Now, I couldn't um, think of a good example from my life of what Paul's getting at here, but I could think of something that he's definitely not getting at. And... Um, I, uh, a few years ago, Liz, my wife, I think we were engaged at the time, asked if I wanted to do a half marathon. And um, I don't know if you've ever had this thing where you don't want to do something, but it's far enough in the future that you can just agree to it and worry about it another time. So I did that, made that mistake. And um, Liz, just like in this passage, had her eyes on the prize. She was focused. She was training. And I was not very good at training. I was like really um, yeah, struggling for motivation. A little, I find running like really boring. And so I was you know, trying to think of ways to make it more interesting, uh, which generally meant not doing it for that long. And, um, but Liz was really trained in it eventually came to the day and I thought oh you know I'll be all right I'll get by um which was the first mistake and then we we set off and we're doing it together it was going well seeing the lovely sights of Cardiff as we ran around and um then I really needed the loo I really needed a wee and I'd seen that Paula Ratcliffe had done that before and it was it was fine but I thought what I'll do is I'll like run like down find a toilet somewhere and that's why I did that and then what I did was I had to like sprint to catch up Liz because she wasn't, she had her eyes on the prize. She was just carrying on. So I sprinted to try and find her again in a crowd of thousands of people, which I did. But um, I'm not an expert, evidently, but I don't think that's like the best way that you can pace yourself for a run. So after sprinting to find her, I found her, I was struggling. And then does anyone know how long a half marathon is? Shout it out if you do. 13.1. Turns out all of you know. In my head... I thought that it was 12 miles, and so um, it was like the 11, 11 and a half, and we were coming towards the finish, the finish line at 12 miles. I was like, I've done it, I've done it. And I kind of got past the finish line, and everyone just was carrying on. And I was literally like doing that thing where I'm like, whoa, whoa, we can, we, 
I thought I'd signed up to a, a whole marathon. So I was like, absolutely struggling. And then it, it, Liz was like, yeah, it's 13.1. Everyone knows that. And, um, and by the end, I was absolutely hanging, like really struggling, uh, just kind of stumbled to the f- finish line. I was not pressing onto the goal. I had not prepared. I was very, very distracted. I don't think that's what Paul's getting at, but it keeps me humble to tell you uh, that story. Our apprenticeship to Jesus is step by step. It's uh, like being transformed from one degree of glory to another, Paul says in another letter. It's this bit by bit. And the amazing truth about our apprenticeship to Jesus is that the best is always yet to come. The best is always yet to come for those in Jesus. And then Paul, um, it's kind of like a real changing gear, really. And um, we see this kind of like pastoral, fatherly heart from the Paul who had planted this church years before when he uses words like through tears as he's telling him. You can see how much this means to him. And it's a warning as well. It's a warning against enemies of the cross. And it's kind of a challenge to maintain living a life of the cross. And he uses this phrase, earthly things. Their mind is set on earthly things. In other letters, he's used that same phrase and talks about things like lust and greed, idolatry, rage, slander, all these different things. But um, when I was just reflecting on this, set their mind on earthly things, it really challenged me afresh. Like how many times I let just things of this world like consume me. How I get angry about things that just do not matter. And how I don't get angry about things that really do matter. I let things of the world consume me. And it's a waste of time. I love the way that Eugene Peterson uh, translates this passage from Matthew 6, where Jesus is talking primarily about money and possessions. But he goes on and says, what I'm trying to do here is get you to relax. To not be so preoccupied with getting so you can respond to God's giving. People who don't know God and the way he works fuss over these things. But you know both God and how he works. Steep your life in God reality, God initiative, God provisions. Don't worry about missing out. You'll find all your everyday human concerns will be met. What a beautiful, beautiful way of putting at it. And I just want to spend a little bit of time here and pause and kind of um, like try and apply this a little bit. Because... I think this, um, this is just really important for us today. And I want to just backtrack to verse 13 where Paul says this. But one thing I do, before then going into what we've looked at. But one thing I do. In this age of distraction that we live in, we are bombarded with information left, right and centre all day, every day. You know, we can only, um, we can't even compute process like a fraction of all of the data that kind of comes upon us every day and this is the information age that we live in the art of focus this one thing I do way of living I want to suggest is a word for us today and so so important so so challenging it's so hard I'm sure lots of you can relate to be fully present in today's day and age but this is important because I really think it affects our relationship with God. I think it affects our relationship with others. And I really think it affects our relationship with, even with ourselves. The more present we are, the more joy that we can tap into, the more alive that we are. Because our focus is taken away. I love this, this challenging quote from Ronald Rollheiser, a Catholic writer. He says that we live in a climate within which it is difficult not just to think about God or to pray, but simply to have any interior depth whatsoever. 
We, for every kind of reason, good and bad, are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. Pathological business, he's not holding back, is he? Distraction, restlessness and ma- are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. When I read that, I can, that really challenges me. That is really in the gut because I know how distracted I can get, how my focus can get not just diverted but actually stolen. This quote from Mary Oliver, attention is the beginning of adoration. And if attention is the beginning of adoration, then distraction and things that consume us are only going to take away our worship of God. And I just want to be, um, be honest here. And I was just kind of reflecting and thinking about ways of which I'm distracted. I'm sure I'm not the only one when I talk about my phone. And this has um, really kind of hit home with me recently, just how much time I waste on my phone, how distracted by my phone I am. And they've got that little feature on the iPhone now, haven't they, where they can see what you've, what you've, your usage. And I did, I did that a couple of times in the last few weeks. And there was some weeks where I spent an average of two hours a day on my phone. Now, some of that would have been practical, would have been for work, whatever, whatever. But majority of it, I know, is, was a waste of time, was distraction, was not my attention being the beginning of adoration on things that really, really count. I think it was like some was 60, 70 pickups a day where I would get my phone. And I just, just know that this isn't just me who struggles with this stuff. And I just, but I just know that Jesus is teaching me something in this. I was reading about this thing called ludic loops, which is basically this thing where like, if you do the same thing again and again, you get just enough satisfaction from it. It's what they apply to things like fruit machines and slot machines, but also with phones. You know, if you have that thing where you like go through social media and social media and email messages, and then you, you get to a point where you've done it long enough where you can just go back to the start and do it again and again. It's that kind of thing that it's talking about. And it's just like, sometimes I think, like, even I'm on my phone, like, with my family or, like, with Josh around my ankles wanting to play. I'm on my phone just checking whatever it is I'm checking. And it's like, what am I doing? Like, if I want to live a life that counts, what am I doing? Wasting some of this time. Because if we slow down, we can notice. And I think if we notice people and things we can love, we need to slow so that we can notice, so that we can love. And I've been like thinking of practical steps. And if this is helpful, just little things like taking notifications off so that you choose when to go into apps rather than them telling you when you should go into that app. Um, other little things like obviously deleting apps, social media, which I've done for a little while. I've turned my phone, I found out you can turn your phone to black and white, which is like making it a lot less exciting, which sounds funny, but it's actually quite helpful. And I think I read this phrase in a blog, um, proximity is destiny. And it's quite simple, but basically if you don't need to be next to your phone, I'm just trying to think of ways where... I don't be next to my phone. And it's, my, it's not just phones, is it? It could be anything. It could be Netflix. It could be sports. It could be drink. It could be food. It could be a whole range of things. I feel like the Spirit's talking to us tonight about challenging us about this distraction, this one thing I do way of living that we can be inspired by from Paul. And then just to go, I wanted this last chunk to finish on. Um, it's an amazing passage where Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus. Now, as I kind of alluded to at the start, Philippi was um, part of a network of colonies of Rome. It was like an outpost of Rome. So um, what would happen is lots of soldiers from the Roman army who'd retired would move to a place. And these would be like the most passionate people for the cause of the Roman Empire. They would be... um, 
they'd be so patriotic, they would worship Caesar literally, uh, weekly, and um, so they would fill the place with these types of people, and as I say, it would just be just like Rome in the way they operated and all that happened around. And so... And the task, really, of the, of the people that live there, the citizens, would be to bring, bring Roman rule, authority, and culture to that place, to Philippi. And um, so when Paul's using this language, our citizenship is in heaven, this is, like, huge. This is not just, a, we might not get it when we read it out today, but this is a huge statement. It's explosive. It's really challenging uh, the believers in Philippi. Like, whoa, 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 is your primary loyalty to Jesus or to Caesar, to the kingdom of God or to Rome. And you can't get away from the challenge of this language. And as Pete said in the second part of this talk, this, this word kyrios for Lord, that was a word used for Caesar on, on the money and things like that. And so it wasn't just this word, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we know. It's this explosive, like challenging word. The Lord Jesus Christ, the only one true Lord, who is our allegiance to. And today that might look different to Caesar. It might be money or sex or power, image, comfort, individualism, technology, a whole range of things. Is our allegiance to other things or is it to Jesus Christ? It's the same question for us today. And also, I think where sometimes we can get this passage wrong, where it's like our citizenship is in heaven, okay, one day we'll be in heaven, one day it will all be cool. But it's not, that's, again, not really what it's getting at. Like, these Roman people, when they were citizens of Philippi, they had a purpose to bring about that rule and reign. And we have a purpose as followers of Jesus today to bring about the kingdom of God, to bring about heaven on earth, in London, in our workplaces, in our everyday lives. We get to play redemptive participation. Our stories get to align with the story of Jesus Christ as we join in with these things. Joining God's purposes to make all things new. It's not just a fancy strap line. Like we really believe in this. And this is what Paul's saying. Our citizenship is in heaven. This is what we're called to. And he says, we eagerly await a saviour from there. Again, this word saviour would have been used in a Roman context. So it's explosive, but he's saying we eagerly await. And even with like news that we've been hearing today and the hard times we face, we do. We do eagerly await a saviour from heaven. We do eagerly await a day where God will make all things new. We read it in Revelation 21. Like, there will be a day where there's no death and no pain and no crying. Like, that is what we look for. We eagerly await that. But in the meantime, Paul says, we have a role to play here. We have work to do here in building and witnessing to the kingdom. We are citizens of heaven today, just as the church in Philippi that he was writing to. We work towards that. And to summarize, really, this is what I want to say. In an age of distraction, we are focused on living a life of purpose, centered on and in response to Jesus. As citizens of heaven, we anticipate and build for the kingdom of God here and now. In an age of distraction, we are focused on living a life of purpose, focused on, centered on and in response to the love of Jesus. We are citizens of heaven and as such we anticipate and we build for the kingdom of God here and now, today. Should we stand together?